There's ample evidence in the Old Testament that at that early point in history, God wanted there to be divisions between the Israelites and the peoples who surrounded them as they moved into the Promised Land. God wanted his chosen people to hold everybody else at arm's length. God did not want his chosen people to mingle with other people and be influenced by them. I've chosen to begin this morning calling this sermon, Redlining the Promised Land. Redlining. Redlining is a word, a phrase that's used uh, to describe the systematic denial of various services, such as financial services, food, health care, education, those sorts of things, to residents of specific neighborhoods or communities. It's an attempt on the part of the majority population to keep everybody out that's not like them. And in, assess, in essence, that's essentially what God did as the Israelites, his chosen people, were entering the promised land. God gave them instructions to drive out the foreigners. God gave them instructions not to worship the gods that these pagans worshipped. God gave them instructions not to intermarry with the people that they would find there, but to get rid of them at all costs. And looking back several thousand years later, it's, it's understandable that God would do that. God was entering human history in an extraordinary new way by leading the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, out of a, a living situation where they had been living shoulder to shoulder with people that worshipped all kinds of Egyptian gods. All the Israelites knew at this point was that God had called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to leave where they were and to go to a new place. And God would make them this extraordinary nation of people, countless as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And God would give them instructions on how the one and only God was to be worshipped. And this was all new information. God would give them the Ten Commandments and the hundreds of Levitical codes in an effort to help them become the people who are patterned after God, not patterned after all of these other small g gods. God wanted his people to live a completely new kind of a lifestyle and to be able to worship God in spirit and truth in a new way, unknown up until that point in history. So this early revelation of God plays right into our tendency to isolate ourselves from people who are not like us, right? They were told to isolate themselves from people that worshipped other gods. But in subsequent years, we would see examples of how people have this natural tendency to isolate themselves from people who are not like them. The Pharisees and the Essenes, two of the religious groups that made up Judaism at the time of Jesus, both found ways to distance themselves from people that were unlike them. The Essenes decided to move out into the wilderness to get out of the neighborhood so they wouldn't be around people that they disagreed with spiritually. The Pharisees became expert law keepers, rule keepers. 
with no tolerance for those who couldn't keep up, no tolerance for those who couldn't keep the law the way they interpreted the law, wanting to avoid all contact with people who couldn't keep the law. We've seen it in this country. Japanese people, after Pearl Harbor, literally isolated in internment camps. After 9-11, many, many Middle Eastern peoples and Muslims automatically assumed to be some sort of terrorists or enemies of America. More recently, Asians who have experienced, experienced uh, ill treatment because they're coming from the country or the area of the world where COVID had its start. When redlining didn't do much of the job in, in U.S. cities, white flight to the suburbs quickly followed, including many inner-city churches that pulled up stakes and moved out to the suburbs with their congregations. The reasons we tend to isolate from and, and shun others are, are many and varied. We, we don't share the same values, so we're uncomfortable in living close together and sharing life together. Our fear of being contaminated, our fear of scarcity, we don't have enough so we can't share with other people. People just aren't like us and so therefore we don't want to be around them, we don't want to share life with them. Face it, the human race is addicted to homogeneity. We are addicted to the desire to be with people who look like us and sound like us and believe like us and act like us. It's just the way the human race seems to work. And when we look back at God's giving of the law, we realize that at that point in history, at least, that was important, that was necessary. But God's Old Testament prohibitions about mixing with other people aren't his final word on the subject. As much as God told the Israelites to isolate themselves from all of the surrounding people, they were incapable of doing it, weren't they? Oh, they made a fairly concerted effort to drive those people out and kill all the people that God said they shouldn't be around. But in the long run, they didn't do a good job of isolating, separating, being God's different people. This led to the corruption of their faith. God uses the metaphor of adultery throughout the Old Testament to describe the Israelites who would go to bed with other gods instead of keeping themselves faithful to the God Jehovah. So it led to the corruption of their faith, and ultimately it led to God's punishment. And how did God punish the people? I love how God punishes people sometimes. He gives us what we ask for. You remember, right, the Israelites, tired of the judges, give us a king like all the other kings. Samuel, they're not... They're not disobeying you, they're disobeying me, so I'll give you a king. And here's what the king is going to do, you know, taxes and military and so on and so forth. God gives us what we ask for. Well, the Israelites had been going after all of these pagan gods. 
And so God says, fine, if that's the kind of adultery you want to live in, I'll just move you over to the, kind, the place where the kind of people you like to spend time with are living. I'll send you into exile in Babylon and Assyria. If they couldn't be the people of God, then he would send them into exile among those they were emulating. Which brings us to Ezekiel. Start trying to find Ezekiel in your Bible right now. <laughs> One of the major prophets. That means there's a lot of chapters there, 48 chapters, so you shouldn't be able to, shouldn't miss that. But uh, Ezekiel chapter 47 is where we'll be reading in a moment. Let me give you a little background on Ezekiel. Ezekiel was sent into exile in Babylonia along with 10,000 other Jews about 600 years before Christ. One of 10,000 people that were captured and marched off to Babylon. 11 years after that happened, the city of Jerusalem and God's temple in that city were destroyed by the Babylonians. It was in Babylon that Ezekiel got his call to ministry, his call to be a prophet. The opening chapters of the book of Ezekiel contain this stern judgment of God with a message that Jerusalem would fall, it would be destroyed. That was part of the punishment that God would mete out to those who had been unfaithful to him. The middle chapters of Ezekiel's prophecy uh, contain a series of judgments against the surrounding nations. God used them as instruments to punish his chosen people for their unfaithfulness, but they in turn would also be punished for attacking God's chosen people. And then the final chapters, which are written, probably written following the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, are a consoling word of hope from God, a message of restoration and revival and a glorious future. Don't you love that about God? God does not hesitate to call us what we are, unfaithful, if that's the case. God meets out the consequences that are punishment for our sin. But God, God always ends the message with a message of hope and reconciliation and restoration. Thank you, Jesus. It's in this last section that we discover a startling and unexpected statement from God about the people that he had previously warned his chosen people to avoid. There's something here that we're about to read in a moment which just doesn't seem to belong in the Old Testament with all that talk about being faithful to God and, and holding everybody else at arm's length and driving them out of the land and not intermarrying and don't do this and don't do that and stay away and stay pure and those people are bad. And, and all of a sudden in Ezekiel, this next to last chapter, we find these words. Chapter 47, beginning at verse 13. This is what the sovereign Lord says. These are the boundaries of the land that you will divide among the 12 tribes of Israel as their inheritance, with two portions for Joseph. Remember, the, Israel, the promised land had been given to the Israelites. It had been divided up. But since that happened under Joshua's leadership, Israel had been unfaithful. Israel had 
been adulterous, and so they had been marched off to Babylon. But now there's going to be a new dividing of the land. Verse 14, you are to divide it equally among them, because I swore with uplifted hand to give it to your ancestors. This land will become your inheritance. This is to be the boundary of the land. And forgive me for any mispronunciations. On the north side, it will run from the Mediterranean Sea by the Hethlon Road past Libo Hamath to Zedad. Yeah, Barothah and Sibrium, which lies on the border between Damascus and Hamath, as far as Hazer Hittikon, which is on the border of Haran. The boundary will extend from the sea to Hazer Inan along the northern border of Damascus with the border of Hamath to the north. This will be the northern boundary. On the east side, the boundary will run between Haran and Damascus along the Jordan between Gilead and the land of Israel to the Dead Sea and as far as Tamar. This will be the eastern boundary. On the south side, it will run from Tamar as far as the waters of Meribah Kadesh then along the Wadi of Egypt to the Mediterranean Sea. This will be the southern boundary. On the west side, the Mediterranean Sea will be the boundary to a point opposite Libo Hamath. This will be the western boundary, which brings us to the paragraph I really want us to pay attention to. You are to distribute this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. You are to allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the foreigners residing among you and who have children. You are to consider them as native-born Israelites. Along with you, they are to be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. In whatever tribe a foreigner resides, there you are to give them their inheritance, declares the Sovereign Lord. How do you suppose that went over? The Israelites living in Babylon, they were there for 70 years because they had been unfaithful to God's instructions to keep everybody else at arm's length. The reason they were there was because they were being punished for being unfaithful to God's redlining. And now all of a sudden, Ezekiel stands up before them and says, God's about to restore you to the promised land. God is about to bring this decades-long punishment to an end. God is going to send you back to your homeland, and we're going to divide that homeland up among those 12 tribes. And I want you to take the people who are not like you, the people that worship other gods. I want you to invite those people that are already living there to be your brothers and sisters, co-inheritors of the land. I don't think so. There probably wasn't an awful lot of woohooing going on. But that's what the sovereign God told them to do. 
in the description of the new boundaries, Ezekiel announces a completely new provision of land for those who are foreigners or aliens in the promised land. This is an inclusion heretofore unknown in the promised land. And perhaps the most extraordinary thing is that God tells Ezekiel to announce that they would be like native-born Israelites. You know, there's always a little bit of a difference between the adopted child and the biological child, right? As much as a family may love them, it's obvious to everybody that there's something different. But God says, I want them to be treated like native-born Israelites. See past any differences there might be and call them brother and sister with the same rights and responsibilities as a native-born Israelite. Ezekiel is, beginning, is the beginning of a new chapter in God's global missionary plan. This is God's way of circling back to something that he had said to Abraham. Do you remember this, Abraham? I'm going to bless your socks off. You're going to be extraordinarily numerous and prolific. And the reason I'm blessing you is so that you might be a blessing to the nations. That is God's original commission to Abraham. Oh, there's going to be a period of time where you're going to have to hold them at arm's length while you're getting set up as God's people, but ultimately you are to be a blessing to the nation, and Ezekiel is announcing that, reminding them of that. You are blessed to be a blessing to the nations. And then when we move into the New Testament, this becomes abundantly obvious. Jesus tells the parable of the sower. You remember the parable of the sower, right? There's rocky land, and there's thorny land, and there's the hard-packed land along the path, and there's the good land. And, and the sower goes out there, and he pulls up a handful of seeds out of the sack, and he goes over to the good soil, and he casts it there, and he doesn't do anything to the other three kinds of soil, right? Oh, no, I'm not telling that story right. Jesus says the sower goes out and he pulls out fistfuls of seeds and he just scatters it willy-nilly wherever it'll land. The wind is blowing it in strange places and he's intentionally going over to thorn patch and throwing it in there. And the message of that parable is that God is sowing the seed of the gospel, the seed of mercy and grace and forgiveness and love everywhere, even if it's places where it doesn't look like it's going to be productive. Jesus gives the great commission to the disciples. I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem where everybody is like you, in Judea where everybody is mostly like you, in Samaria where not many people are like you at all, and the ends of the earth where you don't even know those people yet. <laughs> but I want you to take the seeds of the gospel. The day of Pentecost comes. And there's this huge barrier that has been a, an issue for generations and generations and generations, all the way back to the Tower of Babel. One of the primary differences between people is that we don't speak the same language. 
and initially it was done in order to create the kind of confusion that kept people from usurping God's place. But now on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes, and all of a sudden these Hebrew and Aramaic-speaking disciples are preaching in languages that they didn't learn, and God undoes the punishment of Babel because he wants everybody to know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then there's Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, that says, There before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. You know, God may have started out by telling people to separate themselves from those who were not like them, those who were different, but there's something about growing up in Christ. There's something about the passage of time and what God has been doing through generations after generations. There's something about that that opens the door for us to play a completely new role in God's design, and that role is casting the seed everywhere. A couple weeks ago, I preached the first sermon in this series. I talked about the human race being made in the image of God. We are to be a holy people. We are to resemble God. We are to reflect God's holiness into the world around us. We are the embodiment of Jesus Christ in everything that Jesus stood for in the world in which we live. In order to be holy as God is holy, we often need to start out entering the wilderness, don't we? Forty years the Israelites spent in the wilderness as God reshaped them in his image. And then he released them into the promised land to be his people. Forty days Jesus spent in the wilderness coming face to face with the temptations that would undermine his ministry, being tested to see if he would be able to withstand those temptations to be able to proclaim the good news of God. First, we oftentimes have to isolate ourselves from other people as a new believer, people who once influenced, once influenced us, so that eventually we can become the influences in their life for good and for God. Purity the purity of God must be instilled in us. It, be, it must become mature in us. The love of God is the power that purifies our hearts and our minds and our intentions so that we can be the influencers, not the other way around. Purity means eventually being able to see the world and the mission field through God's eyes. Holiness is inclusive by nature. God wants to gather people into the family of God, doesn't he? And he's willing to invite anybody and everyone. God wants all people to know him and to be saved. Ezekiel's little bit there in chapter 47 was just a, a foreshadowing of the unifying work that Christ would accomplish. And Paul described it in Galatians chapter 3, if you want, want to, to meet me there. Galatians 3, beginning with verse 23, Paul writes... Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. 
Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. In other words, there was value in the Ten Commandments and the Levitical Code. It was necessary for God's people to become truly God's people, for them to do the kind of things that God said. But Paul says that was like a schoolmaster, a guardian, whose purpose was to get us through that phase, that wilderness phase, to get to the point where now we could accomplish more of what God really intended. Verse 26, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. The emphasis being on the word all. Paul, writing to a church largely made up of Gentile believers, he said, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. You're native-born Israelites. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. Nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's where this long trajectory was headed. That after the holding people at arm's length and being conformed to the likeness of God, we would get to the place where we could be influencers among all people to lead them into the freedom that comes in Christ for all people. The holiness of God invites everyone to be a part of the kingdom. The holiness of God is blind to the pre-existing conditions that might seem to make some people unsuitable for the kingdom. Many's the time over the last year as I was preparing for this assessment weekend last, last week, many's the time when I thought it would be a, a whole lot easier if we had separate MAP weekends, ministerial assessment and preparation weekends. We could have one for all the Haitian candidates. We could have another one for all the, the Portuguese-speaking candidates, and they could be fully staffed with people that understood the culture and the language. We could have a, another one for young people because they seem to be looking at ministry differently than the 60-year-olds. We could have separate ones for each one. That would be so easy, wouldn't it? But that's not what God has called us to do. The red line of Christ's blood brought together that diverse group of people. And that is just a microcosm of what God wants to happen every place in the world. I called this sermon, Redlining the Promised Land, intentionally as a double entendre because it's an appropriate title for what God did in the Old Testament. He drew a line around this promised land and he said, the people that I place here are not to be like the people on the outside of that red line. They are to be completely separate and isolated while I work on them. But there's a new red line, and it's the red line drawn in Jesus' blood. A red line drawn around the entire human race that has invited us all to move into his neighborhood.
We are addicted to homogeneity. We are addicted to being with people that are like us because that's easy. But God wants to have a heterogeneous church family, doesn't he? He wants everyone to be a part of that family. We're talking in these weeks about holiness as a combination of purity and mission. The purity of God wants to include everyone, wants to wash every single last human being of their sinful nature so that we might be God's chosen holy people. If we're going to be a part of that mission, we can't be redlining people in our lives, saying they don't deserve it. I'm not the one to take it to them. It's uncomfortable and they're different and I, I don't want to have to go through that hard work. I'd rather not have a translator, thank you very much. So let's bow our heads and do a little listening as the Holy Spirit speaks to us this morning. Who are the people from whom we are distancing ourselves? Who are the people that we really don't want to sit down at the lunch table in the high school and have lunch with? Who are the people that we'd rather have working in a different part of the office? Who are the people that we wished lived in a different neighborhood? Who are the people that we don't think have a right to come to the United States of America to live? What is the mission field of people that we'd rather not have conversations with who seem to be moving in all over the place? Holy Spirit, who are the people that I'm holding at arm's length? you see their faces? Do you know their names? What are the labels that it's convenient to use to describe who they are? What are the opportunities that God may have given you that you didn't take to scatter some seed on hard places? confess that it's difficult, it's hard, it's uncomfortable to think about sharing our life story with somebody else who's different from us. Lord, most of us want to take the easy way instead of the way that leads through Samaria. But Lord, this week we commit our paths to you. We commit to listening to the nudges of your Holy Spirit that would get us off the, 
off the usual path into some foreign territory. Lord, we commit this week to you. We commit ourselves to you. Lord, you have poured out your grace so lavishly in our lives. We can't begin to make a complete list of the many, many ways that you have showered your grace and love and mercy into our lives. And Lord, you haven't done it begrudgingly. You've done it lavishly. You've done it with joy. You've done it with compassion. And we pray that we would be the embodiment of you this week, that we would pour out the grace of God into the lives of uncomfortable, awkward people with the same kind of lavish compassion, compassion as you. Thank you for the opportunities we will have this week to cross paths with people unlike us. Father, thank you for the fact that you have enabled us to see them as children made in the image of God, brothers and sisters. Give us the words. Give us the acts, the actions. Give us the lifestyle of Christ-likeness that will make a difference in building your holy kingdom. We love you, Father, and we thank you for your grace. In Christ's name we pray.